Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Gender, a podcast channel on New Books Network. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Erica Armstrong Dunbar about her new book, Never Caught, The Washington's Relentless Pursuit of Their Slave, Ona Judge. Welcome to the show, Erica. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I'm really glad you're here. This is an amazing book, and I'm really glad that we have this chance to talk about it today. To start us off, I wonder if you would tell us about yourself. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I whenever I'm asked about myself, I, the first thing I say is I feel like I'm a, a very fortunate woman because I get to do what I love and care about the most um, every single day, and that's uh, reading and writing the stories of, of Black women uh, and making certain that uh, we understand American history in particular through, through the lens of Black women's experiences. So, you know, I grew up in, uh, in Philadelphia. I am a Philadelphian and, um, you know, a city that's uh, so full of history, you sort of can't avoid it. I'm not certain that that had... Um, I don't know if that had a huge effect on me growing up, but I I spent all of my sort of early years as a child in a small Quaker school, and uh, I was encouraged to um, find my voice and and sort of follow the the Quaker principle that you know that that everybody's voice matters. You know, it's the sort of the light of God in everyone, but it's also um, that everyone's voice matters. And I think maybe that gave me some of the um, I don't know, foundational building blocks for my career. I went on to major in, in history and African-American studies at the University of Pennsylvania and then did a PhD in uh, U.S. history at Columbia University. And I knew pretty early on that um, I loved history. And I was disappointed often that I didn't necessarily have access to the kinds of books that um, centered the experiences of Black women, in part because Black women's history um, was still relatively new. When we think about the pioneers of Black of those doing Black women's history, that really is something that we see generated in the late 1980s. I was still in high school. I'm just giving my age away, but um, you know, it was something that I would really encounter for the first time um, when I got to college and graduate school. And um, really, it's those the pioneers of people like Deborah Gray White and Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham and Darlene Clark Hine, the, the sort of pioneers of, of Black women's history on on whose shoulders I stand. Um, and I made the decision that I wanted to spend my time as a scholar um, focusing on the lives of early African-American women, meaning those born and calling America their home in the 18th and 19th centuries. And so really I've spent the last, this is my 20th year of teaching. And I've spent the, the last 20 years reading, writing, and teaching about their experiences. I think for me, one of the, the aside from reading, writing, and telling their stories, one of the other honors that I have is that I serve as the National Director of the Association of Black Women Historians, which is the only organization for those who study the lives of, of Black women, not just in the U.S., but across the globe. So I found a way to sort of bring my reading, writing, teaching, um, and leadership in the academy, uh, sort of, I've woven it into one, one quilt. Um, and as I said in the beginning, I, I feel very fortunate. And 
So that leads me to my next question, which is if you had to give a brief synopsis of this book, what would it be? Mm, a brief synopsis. That's always sort of a hard question to, to give to, to long-winded historians. But, um, you know, I, I'd say very quickly that th- this is a book about two things. One, it's a book that introduces one of the most incredible um, women that I ever encountered in the archives. Um, that is, it is a, a biography of the life of a woman named Ona Judge Staines, who um, was enslaved uh, by Georgia Martha Washington. And it's a compelling biography about her life, but more specifically about her life as it centered it's centered within the household, at least for part of her life, of, of the Washingtons. So there's there's the biographical piece of this book that's that's important, right? But the, the other part of this book is is that um, I understood quickly that I could use Ona's story to tell a different version of American history, and that I wanted to tell a history of the founding of the nation a story that's typically centered around educated, wealthy white men who we call our founding fathers, that I wanted to kind of rethink that narrative and I wanted to shift um, their position from that story and to think about the founding of the nation through the eyes of the enslaved, more specifically an enslaved woman who lived um, with George and Martha Washington. And so it was really my goal to to introduce Ona's story, in part because it's compelling and fascinating and um, uh, sort of good storytelling. I wanted to introduce that to a larger um, readership, but I also wanted to be able to center Ona in this story about who built this nation um, from Virginia to New York to Philadelphia to New England. And this book does that so well. It's such a fascinating read, and it's so compelling. Every page just draws you on to the next one. You can't stop reading it once you pick it up. What's <laughs> Thank you. interesting, oh, you're welcome. What's interesting, though, is that when you stumbled on this story, or the, uh, the first um, inkling that there was a story here to be found. You were actually researching something else. Can you tell us about where the idea for this book actually came from? Yeah, you know, I think that my story isn't all that different from from most historians. You know, you're you're working on one project and you find something that intrigues you and pulls you down a rabbit hole. Um, I was I was finishing uh, actually my first book called A Fragile Freedom which focuses on how Black women became free in the North. One of the things I was always frustrated with in graduate school was that there was very little in terms of scholarship on Black women in um, the 18th and 19th century North. There was We had started at that point to see more about Black women on in the plantation South and even in Southern cities, but very little on, on the North. And I... I I wanted to engage that sphere. I wanted to fill that void in part because I think we can learn quite a bit about um, the antebellum South by thinking about the early Republic in the North. Um, And so I was finishing this book and I actually, you know, I was at the Historical Society of Pennsylvania and I was looking through old newspapers, trying to, to sort of fill in some spots on kind of everyday life in late 18th century Philadelphia. And I was doing what scholars do. I was in the in the microfilm room and um, loading one reel after another of uh, late night late eighteenth century newspapers uh, onto the microfilm reader. And um, I was reading through the Philadelphia Gazette, not to be confused with the Pennsylvania Gazette that was created by uh, Ben Franklin, but a different uh, local newspaper in Philadelphia. And I wanted to, I was, you know, what, I wanted to know what people were advertising, what they were writing about politically in the 1780s and 90s. And I was looking through the, the reels and uh, up popped a runaway advertisement for an enslaved person. And I thought, okay, this is somewhat odd because it's the date is 1796 and 
slavery was at least drawing to a close in in Philadelphia. And I, I thought, okay, who's who's looking for a runaway slave in in the newspaper at least titling it as such? And um, I kind of stopped in my tracks because the the language um, was very clear. The first couple of sentences read something like absconded from the household of the president of the United States. And at, at that moment, I was like, okay, wait a minute. You know, then I, I did the double check. I looked at the date, 1796. And I'm asking myself, okay, who that, that's George Washington. Who is George Washington advertising for in a newspaper while he is a sitting president? in a place like Philadelphia where slavery, where the abolitionist movement had already um, changed and forced um, uh, the sort of reimagining of, of law in, in cities across the North. And, and there it was in front of me. It was, and they called her um, Oni, uh, Oni Judge. I call her Ona in my book because that's the name that she went by at the end of her life. Um, Oni, I argue, is a sort of diminutive of her name, like Billy or Bobby or Timmy, Oni. So I call her Ona as a marker of adult dignity. Very important when we're thinking about the stories of the enslaved. Um, and there she was. There was her name, a description of her, and that she had run off. And at, at that moment, I asked myself, okay, well, actually, I felt two things. One, I felt excited, like, hmm, maybe this is going to be the next project because uh, this is interesting. And then the second feeling I felt almost sort of simultaneously was um, a little bit of anger that, you know, here I was a specialist in early African-American women's history, and I didn't know this story. I didn't know this name. I wanted you know, what happened to this woman? Did they find her? And it, it led me on a nine-year journey, really, of doing research and writing, trying to uncover um, the steps of, of Ona Judge and um, to learn as much as I could about her and her life. And for listeners, when you get a copy of the book, the advertisement is here in the book. It's on page 99. Uh, it's the opening of chapter eight. And it says that um, he was offering a $10 reward for her return. Yeah, it was, you know, that's that's one of the things when you look at, at runaway ads. Um, one of the things that's most striking is the dollar amount that's tagged to the ad and there and also tagged to the value of black life in um, the 18th century. And typically, you know, if students read the book or they write to me, they ask, you know, what, what does $10 mean? And in at least in 1796, and in that same newspaper, um, there were advertisements for the sale of barrels of flour. And a barrel of flour would cost ten dollars. Um, and so, you know, for me, part of the reason why I put the advertisement um, in the book was because I wanted people to see the actual image. Um, the Washington's actually advertised for for Ona Judge in two separate newspapers: the Philadelphia Gazette and Claypool's American Daily Advertiser. And so, I wanted, you know, one one of the things that I always try to do with my readers is I want them to see what I see. I want to pull them in and have them view the documents, the primary sources um, that I used to help um, to help write this story. And it's visceral when you see that ad there and that the first words on it are the $10. That's at the very top before you know anything else. Uh, it, it hits you. It does, and it, I think in a powerful way. It, it when you the the entire advertisement, you know, there's it it hits you in the beginning, and then when you read through the entire advertisement, which um, is in the paperback version of the book, towards uh, I believe in, in the back, um, you know, there's there's also a reference to the fact that this um, reward would be offered to both 
either black or white people. So, you know, it was sort of the the reminder that um, while we know there's a long history of, of, ca- of slave catchers, of those who were kidnapping freeborn people and or um, roaming through the streets of northern cities, um, attempting to recapture enslaved people, um, that this was also a sort of an incentive or an enticing maneuver to try and get Black Philadelphians um, to turn Ona in. And um, it didn't work. And as you get further into the book and you realize about the tremendous poverty, you can see the manipulative tool of that, of trying to turn people against each other because there can be such tremendous poverty that free Blacks could face in this time period. Yeah, free, um, free, free Blacks or, you know, white men and women who are also struggling with, um, you know, dire circumstances with um, a lack of employment opportunity that would, you know, today we would call it a living wage, but of course then they didn't, but would allow them to survive um, and to feed their families. So, you know, money was always the incentive um, to try and and bring those who had had really taken the greatest risk of their lives. So that was um, to run away, to become fugitives. Money was always the incentive used to try and um, re-harness those people and bring them back to their enslavers. And so you first learned of Una Judge and that she had escaped from the Washingtons by seeing this ad. But that takes us sort of to the middle of her story. Um, so if we go back to um, the beginning of Una, Ona, uh, Ona, sorry, mm-hmm. uh, Ona, and how she ended up living with the Washingtons, can you tell us about how she was born into the life with them? Sure. Um, so Ona represents uh, a generation of men and women who were born during the era of the revolution. Um, we believe she was born sometime in 1773 or 74. We don't, of course, have a birth record for her because the because enslavers didn't often write down the birth dates of the enslaved. Uh, we know that she was um, the daughter of a woman named Betty. Betty was technically owned by Martha Washington. And that's a sort of important thing to um, to uh, point out that technically she was never the property of George Washington. She was um, Ona and Betty, her mother, were what was were known as, as um, dower slaves. They were owned by the dowry or the estate of, of Martha Washington. And, and for those who, who maybe don't remember, Martha Washington was married one time before George Washington. She was widowed um, and she came to the marriage with a significant inheritance, or at least in terms of property. And a great deal of that property included enslaved men and women. So when Martha Washington moved to Mount Vernon after she married George Washington, she brought Betty and Betty's two-year-old son, Austin, who would be Ona's half-brother. And they would um, spend their, the rest of their years, for the most part, um, at Mount Vernon. We know that Ona's father uh, was a white indentured servant named Andrew Judge. Um, do I have a certificate? Once again, I don't have a certificate of birth that tells me Andrew Judge uh, was was her father. However, we do know that um, he was a tailor uh, who came through the port of Baltimore and eventually Washington purchased his indenture agreement. He came to Mount Vernon. Uh, Betty was a seamstress and a sewer, um, a spinner. We don't know uh, what the nature of their encounter relationship, I'm hesitant to even use those words because I don't know how they um, were connected to one another. I don't know if it was consensual. Um, I don't know if it was violence. What I do know is that there was only one person with the last name, the, the surname of Judge at Mount Vernon, and that was Andrew Judge. And the, the Washingtons um, 
on multiple occasions uh, listed Ona or own, they called her Oni, but listed Ona with the surname of Judge. And then I, I sort of moved out beyond that. Um, there was no one else in all of Fairfax County, Virginia, with the last name of Judge. Um, so for me, in addition to the descriptions of her um, as a light-complected, probably mixed-race uh, person, that it, to me it became crystal clear that Andrew Judge was indeed her father. We know that eventually he leaves Mount Vernon. He works off his his indenture agreement um, and uh, really has nothing else to do with uh, with Ona. And so Ona would be left at Mount Vernon with her mother and um, half-siblings, and she would spend her time there as um, an enslaved child. And at the age of 10, she is brought up to the mansion house to begin her duties as um, an enslaved person working in the household. And, and this is a sort of marker of the end of childhood um, for Ona and for many other enslaved children. The difference was for Ona, fairly quickly, she becomes Martha Washington's sort of preferred um, enslaved person. I don't, sometimes people have called her an attendant or server, and I, I don't like those phrases in part because I think it diminishes what her actual role was in that house and what her um, her position as an enslaved person. So I try not to use those words because I don't want anyone to mistake that, um, be mistaken that she was indeed enslaved, but she becomes Martha Washington's sort of top slave, if you will, for the lack of a, of a better phrase. Um, and she's really in charge of the most intimate of responsibilities for Martha Washington. She helps her bathe. She brushes her hair. She's um, making her clothing and cleaning it. She is around her at all times. And um, sort of importantly for, for Ona, she learns quickly to be ever present, but um, almost unseen. And um, so she spends her, her years, what we would call her teenage years, part of them, uh, at Mount Vernon serving Martha Washington. And you tell us in the book that for the enslaved women, one of the great moments of concern and danger for them was when Martha married George because they did not know what kind of man he was and what kind of liberties he was going to take and what he might do. Um, because as you, you mentioned with um, Ona's conception, consent is not not something that women were expected to even be able to give. They were always in these incredibly vulnerable positions. And here Ona has come up to the house and she's working with Martha and it seems at this point she's got an idea of what her life is going to be. Um, but when she's about 16, George is elected unanimously from the electoral votes as the new president of the United States. And you paint very vividly this um, unease amongst all parties. George doesn't seem to want to be president. Martha doesn't want to move. Um, and the enslaved people who are going to be chosen to go along um, don't have any say, don't want to go, and don't know what's going to happen to them. Um, can you take us to that moment and, and that time period when there's this great upheaval and uncertainty? Um, it seems to be one of the most unhappy announcements that someone's going to be president um, behind the scenes that I've ever heard. Yeah, I, I think it was... Um perhaps slightly surprising, um, maybe, maybe not, but also disconcerting um, that George Washington, who had spent so many years away from his beloved Mount Vernon, fighting in the American Revolution, and, um, you know, he had finally returned to being a private citizen and uh, a farmer, which is what he cared deeply about. And here he was now um, thrust into the position of um, becoming the first president of the United States. And it was, it was something that was deeply um, uh, worrisome, in some way troublesome uh, for him. 
And we know that uh, Martha Washington was completely reluctant about moving um, to New York, the, the location of the first capital. And I must say that um, uh, Never Caught actually came out, you know, several years ago. And it came out at a moment um, where there were some parallels to the, the sort of current uh, administration. There was a person who was elected president that um, was quite surprising to many. Um, and perhaps he himself did not believe he was actually going to be elected president. There was a first lady who did not want to move from New York to Washington, D.C. Um, and a sort of state of, um, of unknowing, of no unknowing whether or not this would even, um, at least for the Washingtons and George Washington in particular, whether or not this union that he had fought so hard for, um, if it would actually work. Um, and of course, coming to, to New York, um, and leading the nation was, uh, something he simply had to do, um, really as a, as a servant to the, the, the nation, the new nation. Um, eventually, of course, Martha Washington really had no say as a woman and as George Washington's wife, she would eventually relocate. Um, and of course, the enslaved who the Washingtons um, took with them to New York, um, seven enslaved people, five men, two women, um, they had no choice at all. They were to leave their families and everything that they knew behind. And one of the enslaved people chosen to go, unsurprisingly, was Ona. That was... Martha Washington's um, uh, preferred um, person, enslaved person. And so, you know, at the age of 16, Ona is, is ripped from all that she knows um, and heads north um, to basically be, continue the, the work that she had been doing, but without her family, without her mother, without the majority of her siblings. There was one exception. She was able to travel with her half-brother, Austin, who was older uh, than her and male and could per perhaps provide some protection for her. But um, in essence, this was um, the complete rupture for Ona and her, her relationship with her family. That was really striking to me about the pain of her having to leave Betty and never knowing if she would see her mother, Betty, again. They spend some time in New York, and through some political brokering, the residency for the president is going to be changed to Philadelphia. And it's there in Philadelphia that this story of Ona takes a very sudden, unexpected turn. Can you tell us about the policies about holding an enslaved person in Philadelphia and how that suddenly changes everything for the enslaved persons who've been brought with the Washingtons there. Yeah, I mean, one of one of the great things, and I said this earlier about Ona's story and her experiences is that it allows us to explore the, the entirety of the new nation. And so when the Washingtons travel to New York and they force enslaved people to travel with them in 1789, um, it's in a moment in which there's still quite a bit of slavery happening in New York. The governor owns slaves and most of the, the sort of uh, politicians, if you will, of the day um, own enslaved people. And it's not um, considered something that's abnormal. Um, that's not to negate a growing group, uh, class of, of free blacks. But for the most part, um, you know, while things were, were different in New York, slavery was still sort of unchecked. In That changes in Philadelphia. And what, what I wanted to do was to show how two places, New York and Philadelphia, only within, what, 100 or so miles of each other, could be so very different at this moment around the issue of enslavement 
when Ona arrives in Philadelphia in 1790, she um, is actually in the minority when it comes to enslaved people. Pennsylvania had enacted a Gradual Abolition Act in 1780, so a decade before she arrived. And basically that act, that Gradual Abolition Act, um, really changed the face of, of Black freedom throughout all of the North. Pennsylvania and Massachusetts were among the first um, to do so. But the law basically said, well, there were many components to the law, but it basically gradually emancipated Black people. So it didn't set anyone free immediately. Um, and that's a reminder that, you know, slavery ran deep um, and its financial um, uh, talons ran, uh, clung to enslavers throughout the North and in, in Philadelphia as well. But basically after after a period of 28 years, you were supposed to um, emancipate your enslaved person, right? And we say, oh, okay, 28 years, that's not so bad. But actually, of course, it is. And it's the 18th century. When we think about that, that's half of your lifespan um, for the average person. Um, but one of the other pieces of the legislation required that for those who were not uh, residents of the state of Pennsylvania, if you came to visit, and you came to visit and you brought enslaved people with you. You could not stay for longer than six months with your enslaved people. And if you overstayed your welcome, if you went past that, that six month period, that the enslaved men and women who came with you um, were entitled their freedom. And so this quickly becomes, um, this is something that George Washington actually believed that he um, just is exempt from the rules that, you know, he's basically there on business. And because he's there on business, he's, he's on it. He does not have to follow those rules. But in, in fact, that was untrue. And um, he is made aware of um, this situation from the attorney general, who basically informs the Washington family that, look, um, we're not exempt from this. And part of the reason I know is because my own enslaved people told me so, and they've left my house. Uh, it's a sort of, it's a sort of a stunning moment where the person who is supposed to know the law of the land is being sort of um, schooled by, you know, illiterate enslaved people. And they do, they leave when they get to get their freedom. So um, he's he's basically giving a warning to George Washington, and this is one of those moments where, as a scholar, you know, I've, I'm reading through. George Washington kept a, a voluminous, you know, amount of of records and writings, and uh, was looking through his his writings, and he is um, written to at the time he's in Virgi he's in Virginia, I believe, on a southern tour, and um, the secretary Tobias Lear reaches out to him and says look, this is the situation. Um, what would you like us to do? And I believe he says something like, what, what would you like us to do about the blacks in the family? That's what he says. And Washington writes back and he basically creates a slave rotation plan. And what he tells his secretary to do and to, and to reach out to his wife, uh, to Martha, and, and basically to make arrangements that every six months before the six month marker, they were to shift the enslaved people out of the state of Pennsylvania, send them back to Virginia for a quick visit, or if that was inconvenient, uh, a trip across uh, the river to Trenton, New Jersey, to another state, that basically this would stop the clock on this gradual abolition law, so we thought. Uh, and that it would allow him to evade the law. And he writes, he writes this, and he says, you know, I want to do this and to deceive them, meaning the enslaved, and the public. So it's this moment where you know, you see George Washington write that he knows that this is a, not just a violation of the law, because it was, but it was also a violation of the principle of the law. And the principle was, to begin and to nurture the ending of slavery. But he used his power of the presidency and he used his knowledge, supposed knowledge of the law to try and avoid 
um, losing his enslaved people and was uninterested in not having enslaved um, laborers in his home. He could have had white men and women servants. There were, you know, a, a large number of um, servants who would have been acceptable to serve him and Martha Washington, but that's not what they wanted. And so for the next six years, um, the Washingtons would shuttle the enslaved, including Ona, back and forth every six months. You take us through that in the in the book and you, you take us into their minds. And there's one place in the story where Attorney General Randolph has just come to, to meet with Martha, as you said, and he tells her how three of his enslaved people have explained the laws there to him and then left. And you describe the household, the quarters there, how many people live under this one roof. And Martha's hope is that no one in the household has heard this so that this information can't make its way through her enslaved people. Um, and when they realize that's not possible, um, you you have us, uh, you bring us into the story of another person there, Hercules. Mm-hmm. Um and he's this amazing um, chef for the family, and he is enslaved. And it appears from my reading that Martha is concerned that the plan for what to do won't happen before Hercules is aware that he can just leave at any moment. So they they have to let him know. And you take us inside Hercules' calculations about what to do, and he has two very young motherless children back at Mount Vernon. And if he uses his legal right to become free in that moment, he puts those two small children in unknown danger. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's one of those moments in the book where I tried to make clear the constant um, strategy, calculations that the enslaved were forced to make every day. And it could mean um, plotting the sort of uh, mundane um, decisions of everyday life, what to cook, what, um, uh, how to clean, and, and to do it in a way to be um, thoughtful and um, to make certain that their owners were happy, right? Because if your owner is unhappy, then your life becomes difficult, right? So there's a calculus that is employed every single day. Don't burn your food. Don't accidentally break a dish. Don't um, forget to water the horses. These were things that could upset the temperament, right, of an enslaver. So that that's the sort of the mundane, the everyday. And then there were these bigger moments, these bigger issues, these decisions that the enslaved had to make that always, almost always revolved around their own opportunity for freedom. By the time that that Washington writes back to Tobias Lear, secretary, and, and Martha Washington, six months have passed for Hercules. And um, they know that he could take advantage of the law. And for them actually to think that the enslaved would not know the law, that the enslaved would not know about opportunities that word of mouth wouldn't spread. Hercules was someone who spent a great deal of time um, in and and around um, new friends he made in Philadelphia. And uh, he was allowed a certain measure of um, autonomy. He would sell the kitchen scraps uh, on the market for um, for extra money. And so he was out and about. And there's absolutely no way that the Washingtons were naive to think that they could contain the information that about freedom, that they could contain it and, and prevent the enslaved from knowing it. They knew. They knew. And, and it didn't matter that, you know, whether you were illiterate or not, they knew. And so really, there's this moment where Hercules is confronted with an opportunity. He could walk. He could walk at that moment. And according to Pennsylvania law, he could um, 
live as a free person. This, uh, this was an option. But if he did so, he knew that he would most likely never see his children again. And um, this was a decision that he made at least at this moment in his life um, that he couldn't do that, that he didn't want to do that, that he didn't want to separate himself um, from his family. And so he, um, he made the decision not to run off, not to demand his freedom, and continued on in his role as, as an enslaved chef for the Washingtons until uh, later on in his life. And, but we do know that, that Hercules never abandoned the idea of escape. He had just made the decision that that was not the right moment for him. And this story um, really foreshadows when Ona is going to be faced with a decision to seize a moment to take her own freedom, knowing that it means she won't see any of her family again. Um, and that moment comes at a complicated time in Martha's life. Um, her family history was intersecting and confusing. Um, so I wonder if you can unpack for the readers why uh, Ona is suddenly faced with a, a decision about her own freedom when uh, Martha's granddaughter suddenly announces that she's getting married. Yeah, you know, Martha's an important person in this text. Um, She's important in part because she is the the legal sort of owner, if you will, of of Ona. Um, But she's also important because she gives us um, at least the experience um, of uh, white women white women of wealth, uh, but white women during the era of the American Revolution and the early Republic, um, as I said earlier, you know, she was married once before, um, had four children. And and by the time she, the Washingtons arrive in New York, all of her children were dead. And that was something, she had outlived every single one of her children. and, And that was something that women of any race um, lived with frequently during the early period. When we think about, um, you know, the sort of early uh, understandings of of medicine um, and how disease could easily um, wipe out entire families, you know, she was someone who lived with great grief with her children being gone. And really, she only had her grandchildren left as her heirs. She, she and George basically adopted two of her grandchildren, and um, they came to live with the Washingtons in New York and Philadelphia. And one of her grandchildren, who she did not come to live with her, she was a little older, um, she was uh, a woman who um, stayed, she lived in Virginia, and um she was someone who Martha Washington was somewhat concerned about. She uh, was known for having this sort of explosive personality. Um, and we have to ask ourselves, did she really have an explosive personality or was she a woman who kind of knew what she wanted in uh, the 18th century? But in any case, she wrote to the Washingtons and she told them that it was her plan to be married and that they didn't know um, her intended, and that he was 20 years older than she, and that he was um, a British man, and that he had come to the United States only a few years before, and, and the Washingtons were nervous, in particular uh, Martha, and uh, she made the decision that, that her, her granddaughter, Eliza Hart Custis, um, was really unprepared for marriage, and that while there was very little she could do, the one thing she could offer to her granddaughter in her absence, she's in Philadelphia, her granddaughter's in Virginia. The one thing that she could do was to give her the very best enslaved person that she owned. And so it was her plan to give Ona as a wedding gift to Eliza Park Custis. And this was the trigger that um, this, this plan to give 
Ona away was the trigger on what would become Ona's escape and her life as a fugitive for nearly half a century. She knew Eliza Park Custis. She didn't like Eliza Park Custis. And she had no intention of ever um, serving her in the same capacity as she had Martha Washington. And I think it's important to note that, you know, for, for almost seven years, Ona had been living in the North, whether it was New York and then six years in Philadelphia, she knew what black freedom looked like. Unlike her time at, uh, in, in, at Mount Vernon, she, she saw free black men and women on the streets selling pepper pot soup and, and oysters and running boarding houses and uh, building churches. And she saw what the opportunity looked like in places like Philadelphia, New York, and Boston. She knew that it, slavery was not the only thing in, in only game in town as it was in, in Virginia. And so this triggering event, in addition to her um, kind of coming of age in a place where black freedom was palpable. All of that helped to prompt Ona to make the decision to leave. And she knew how risky it would be. She knew that if she was um, caught and returned, that um, it could trigger her sale. That she could be sold further south. Um, she could never see her her family members again, but that decision wouldn't be her own. It would be because of her enslavers. And so this idea of having to serve um, Eliza Park Custis law when she was married, uh, that, that, was the, that was the moment. She knew she couldn't and wouldn't do it. And so she made the decision to leave. And you, you provide even more worries, very tangible, uh, evidence-based worries that are part of Ona's factoring decisions. You, you tell us in the book that when uh, George Washington was angry with um, a couple of male slaves, he, he not only had them sold, he had them sold deliberately to the West Indies, which was some of the most cruel uh, conditions that you could imagine. And he knew that. Yeah. I um, mean, to, to sell, you know, to sell enslaved people to the Caribbean at that time, you know, that was like a death sentence. That was, it, you, you know, yeah. the mortality was rates were, were, you know, it, you knew that you were going somewhere to die. And you have an example of him deliberately uh, giving uh, permission to uh, one of the overseers to continue to be one of the female slaves. The, the overseer writes and talks about a situation and explains that he has, he has already, the, the description of it, he's severely beaten uh, this female slave. And, and Washington's answer is basically, well, that's what you have to keep doing. So it's well known what the consequences could be if this doesn't work. If she doesn't um, run away in such a way that she's never found. Um, but also weighing on her is the character of uh, Mr. Law himself. Um, one of Ona's worries has always been uh, men taking advantage of her, and there is irrefutable proof that he does that. Yeah, there's, you know, I think that the concern about sexual assault was a universal concern among enslaved women and children, yeah. girls, and uh, honestly, uh, men too. We just don't know as much about that. But to think that men were exempt from from sexual assault as uh, enslaved men, you know, that would just be kind of ridiculous. Of course they were, because it's slavery and um, the, the violence of slavery was predicated upon power. And we know that sexual assault is often, you know, that the, the, the heart of that, the center of it is about power. And for enslaved women, like Ona Judge, she knew the stories. She knew the, the probability 
of um, sexual attack. We do, as I said, we don't know her origin story. We don't know if that came from sexual attack. What we do know is that her mother and her aunts and other or um, uh, extended kin would have told her the stories, would have told her how to try and stay safe. And whether it, it was successful or not was, was yet to, was unknown. But this was something that not just Ona, but every enslaved woman and girl lived with um, uh, throughout, throughout the centuries. And um, yes, she would have been concerned about um, Eliza Law's new husband. She would have been concerned about any man that Eliza Law would have married. Um, and not to mention, perhaps there was concern about the, the men in her own household. Uh, the grandson of the Washingtons was, was coming of age, no longer, a, you know, just a little boy. Um, and these are things, dynamics that always changed in a household and one that always kept enslaved women, as I said before, having to reimagine the calculus of their lives. This was constant, unyielding. Um, and eventually, one of another reason that Ona made the decision to run. And it must have weighed on her heavily what that meant for her sister, Philadelphia, when um, she gets the, the job that Ona has run away from. So can you tell us about uh, Ona's escape uh, to New Hampshire and her life there? And can you tell us about the life in contrast that uh, Ona's uh, sister, Philadelphia, has. Sure. Um, uh, well, you know, what I will say, I, I will tell some of it, but you know, I am trying to sell books too. So I'm not yes. going to sell everything, but I mean, Just a little of bit. Course, you, the, the book is called Never Caught. So, you know, there's that, but um, I do think it's really important, you know, that when we think about Ona's escape, um, it is once it is well-planned, it is thought out. It is um, and it's assisted. And we don't know exactly who helped Ona run. She tells us that it was the, the free blacks in Philadelphia, but she doesn't give us names. Uh, and of course, she couldn't because that was by the time that she had run in 1796, May of 1796. Um, the, it had already been written into law by George Washington, a fugitive slave law. So no matter where she went, she was still going to be considered a fugitive. So she doesn't tell us who helped her in order to protect them. And she does, um, we believe, find support from um, free blacks connected to, to Mother Bethel Church, um, an important and still um, uh, in existence, uh, a congregation that uh, was led by Richard Allen, um, a well-known um, a minister, preacher who himself had been enslaved but had found freedom. Uh, it was known that he helped many enslaved people um, find their way to at least living as a free person. And Ona leans on them. We don't know, as I said, we don't know all of the details, but we do know um, by tracking vessel records. And, you know, the most important thing that we haven't mentioned yet is that Ona does leave behind two interviews at the end of her life. And so when checking these interviews, so much of it actually matched up uh, so that I was able to, to track the name of the ship um, and the ship master, ship owner, captain, um, in order to, um, to give more life and detail around Ona's escape. But she makes her way to Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And once she's in New Hampshire, she would literally have to spend the rest of her life looking over her shoulder. And I think that's really important to remember. So, so often we, you know, the stories of, of fugitives in particular are celebrated as if um, once you've run away, um, you've found your freedom. But in actuality, it's far from that, right? It's the truth is, is that life was difficult 
life was always um, one that no matter how you carved out your happiness, you were still required to look over your shoulder for the rest of your life. And, and Ona, you know, w- without giving away all of the details, Ona would have to, um, she would have to fight to remain um, in her position, living as a free person. And I say that as a distinction. I don't say that Ona was ever free because she wasn't. She lived as a free person. She was simply never caught. That's why the title is what it is. She was not a free person, and nor was she. She lived for a half a century after she ran away. But she would constantly look over her shoulder, and she would have to um, fend off um, the Washington slave catchers. And it's a moment where we see the president of the United States um, assert himself and the power of the presidency in a way that was inappropriate, if not illegal, to lean on the treasurer, treasurer of, the, of, of the United uh, States, to, to lean on customs collectors, all of whom were appointed federal positions in order to recapture his enslaved woman. All of this is what Ona must live through and navigate um, in the, the closing um, pages of the book, it was my way to remind readers that, you know, aside from the story of Ona's freedom, the other piece of this story is to what lengths George and Martha Washington went to try and capture Ona and to return her to Virginia. Um, we know that they were not successful, but it makes us, what I wanted us to do is to really, or rather readers to do, is to really think about George Washington as the first president, but also as a man, as a slaveholder, um, and as a person who was very invested in the creation of his own legacy. And um, that all of these things impacted his actions. So that Ona's running away helps us understand and learn more about the presidency, and, and also about Michael Washington. And, and the book does that so, uh, so profoundly. I know when listeners get a copy of the book, they're going to find so much more than we've had a chance to touch on here today. And the interviews that, that Ona did at the end of her life with the newspaper, there's two different interviews. And they begin um, on page 204 in the book, and you get to see both um, – a reproduction of the newspaper itself with the um, the interview, and then it's also transcribed because that type is super small. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it's transcribed, um, and you can read you can read every word of both of the interviews. Um, this is truly um, a book that gives us so much to think about. Um, as you say, when you read it now, um, it it is profound about the things about our current um, political structure and, and the last four years um, that it it does make one wonder um, how much of history we do repeat over and over. And, um, and um, it's a powerful book. Thank you so much for being here today, Erica. Um, What parting words would you like to leave listeners with? Um, you know, I think I just want um, uh, people to really understand how um, grateful I am to have encountered Ona in the archives. In some ways, I kind of believe that she sort of found me, that I was in the right place at the right time, and perhaps the right person to write her story. And to share her story of courage, of grit, of determination um, against every odd, I think is a story that is universal. And I think it's a story about courage and patience. And um, it's a story that I think we all sort of need to hear right now, that I think we all need a little bit of of Ona's courage. 
Thank you so much for being on the show today, Erica Armstrong Dunbar, and telling us about your book, Never Caught, The Washington's Relentless Pursuit of Their Runaway Slave, Ona Judge. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you've been listening to New Books Network. Please join us again.